Hey y'all, this is Tommy. This episode of Southbound is a replay of my 2020 conversation with Wright Thompson. His best-selling book, Pappyland, which we talk about right up front, has just come out in paperback. And since our conversation, he's written profiles for ESPN of Mike Krzyzewski and Joe Montana, among others. And he's continuing work on his TV series called True South. If you haven't heard Wright before, you're in for a treat. And if you have, it's worth listening again. Most people who are running are actually running for themselves. And so it doesn't matter where you go or how fast you go, you're not getting any further away from the thing you want to get away from. Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And for WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. I met Wright Thompson 10 years ago when we were working on the same story for different magazines. The main thing I remember about that trip is a long, hazy night in a hotel bar in Alabama where we talked like we had known each other forever. Wright was already one of America's best sports writers then, and he's only gotten better. His profiles for ESPN bring new insights into people who've been in the spotlight for decades, like Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods. Lately, Wright has ventured into some new things. He's the executive producer of a TV show called True South, which explores Southern food and culture side by side. And he has a new book, already a New York Times bestseller, called Pappyland, about the family that created America's most coveted bourbon, Pappy Van Winkle. Pappyland turns out to be the story of Wright and his family, too. We talked a lot in this episode about running, running away from home and running back to it, and finally running toward the life you really want. We've both been thinking about that a lot lately. Here's our conversation. I Just to set this up for people who maybe don't drink much bourbon or don't know much about this world, what makes Pappy Van Winkle so special and coveted? You have immediately, as usual, arrived at the incisive and million dollar question. And some of it is what's in the bottle and some of it is what you bring to the bottle. I mean, some of it is, it is in fact, unbelievably high quality, fine, fine aged bourbon. You know, I don't really, I try not to get into the game of this is the best cheeseburger, this is the best bourbon, because I sort of think that, you know, it's sort of like pizza. Like, I don't want to hear an argument about pizza because the best pizza in the world is the first pizza you ever fell in love with, whether that's uh, at some old school place in New Haven or the Pizza Hut in Clarksdale, Mississippi, you're Chuck E. Cheese's. You know, I mean, it's sort of like, but Pavi Van Winkle is uh, highly rated, coveted by chefs, people with palates more sophisticated than mine, uh, say it is one of, if not the finest bourbon in the world, combined with the fact that it is very culty now because it's almost impossible to get. And so, you know, that. I don't think there are not many bottles that will hit a liquor store shelf in America. Most of them are raffled off to loyal customers long before they ever hit a shelf. I mean, the, no one in America can walk into a liquor store and buy it at sticker price. Now the, the book is about sort of not just the story of the bourbon itself, but about Julian Van Winkle, the grandson of Pappy who sort of brought this, bourbon as a way the way that we know it kind of into existence 
what about him intrigued you enough that you wanted to write a book about him? It started, it got interesting for me when I realized that, you know, yes, he's from this whiskey family, but that he didn't just inherit this. He's not one of those guys who was born on third base and thought he had a triple. You know, his grandfather built a distillery and then his father lost it. And so Julian was left to start over. And he, I mean, just kept putting out this fine whiskey that no one wanted for decades. And, you know, it wasn't until 1997 when something, when basically one of those like people who rate wines rated his whiskey in 99 and it took off and became this culty thing. But until then, he just was borrowing money every year and, you know, spent through everything he had. I mean, he spent so much money that this year they're finally paying the loans back. So like 2021 will be the first year totally in the black. And so uh, it got interesting to me when I realized that he wasn't doing this for all those years because he believed that one day they would have the success. You know, you, you often hear chase your dreams, chase your dreams, whatever. And he was doing it because he wanted to fail with honor. Uh, uh, that was really interesting to me. And that's where this got really interesting and the themes of inheritance and what you owe previous generations and what you want to pass on. I mean, all of those ideas, which I feel like are tent poles or sort of load bearing struts in the book uh, were born out of that realization. It ended up obviously as, as you read the book, as we read the book, becoming not just about Julian and his family and the story of Pappy Van Winkle, but it becomes your story and your family and your family history and all that sort of thing. What parallels did you start seeing between your life and Julian's life that made you want to tell your story as part of this? It started with this sort of nagging thing I had, which is that the most powerful parts of the experience of doing this to me were the things I was thinking about and the things I was talking about with Julian after we'd stopped talking about the bourbon stuff for the book. And so one, I just had this, I just was like the most interesting and poignant version of this experience can't be in my head and not on the page. Like that feels like something about that felt off, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. I mean, I, I started this book several times a lot of times, I don't even know how many, and threw it away because I just didn't like it. And oddly enough, uh, I had a collection of stories that came out last year and I had to write like an intro or whatever, a foreword for it. And I didn't really know what I was gonna say and it was getting down to it. And I sort of had an epiphany and it's pretty interesting because in some ways, like the voice of that is the voice of the book. And so having to write that unlocked it for me pretty quickly. Well, it's so interesting you say that because I, I was going to ask you a question along those lines. I see such a direct path from the forward of that book, that collection of yours, which is called The Cost of These Dreams from an old drive-by trucker song yep. um, into what Pappyland is about. That forward is about, you know, all the ways you feel like you've fallen short with your family because of this career you've pursued. Yeah. And I guess I, I, the way I want to ask it kind of in the direct way is, what do you think your dreams have cost you? 
I mean, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, I wrote, I had to reread a big chunk of Pappy Land a couple of weeks ago to try to find something. Someone was going to excerpt something. And I, so I had to reread it. And there was this paragraph in there that hit me like a ton of bricks because, you know, I'm writing in there about how all success is really just a, it's just a stack of poker chips and what are you going to trade for it, you know? And so, you know, I talk in there about the kind of person I want to be. And yet I have a three week old daughter and like, I would be scared. Like we had another daughter three weeks ago and I'm terrified to sit here with you and figure out the number of hours she's been alive and the number of those hours I've been out promoting a book. Like I would not like that ratio. And so, uh, you know, I've gained many things, almost everything from this job. I mean, I don't want to end up in a situation where uh, I forget that you do it to buy yourself something, not just to do it. And so, you know, even the experience of uh, being out, being away from your family to sell a book about family is uh, 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 pretty fucking confronting. Uh, well, I, you know, uh, I underlined a lot of stuff in your book, but this is the main thing that I think about now when I think about, I haven't read it, is this exact passage, which I'll, I'll read since I've got it right here in front of me. I profile famous and successful athletes for a living, and almost no one understands that success is merely a currency to spend on one big purchase. Do you use it to try to get more success, to maintain the attention and bright lights, or do you buy a life with it, the kind of life most people really want? And that hit me really, really hard. And I can't imagine that it doesn't hit people really hard who have made sacrifices in their life and their family and that sort of thing for something, whatever it is, that they see way out in front of them or maybe even can't see. And it, it feels like, you know, I... You know, we've known each other for a long time since we were both sort of fairly young and striving writers. And you have had this tremendous success. You know, you've had a couple of best-selling books. You had a TV show. You're on anybody's list of the best sports writers in the world. Is there still, is that thing you're chasing still beyond you? You know, that's the exact passage I was just talking about. And I mean, it, it, it chokes me up a little to even hear it because of the ways in which I see myself falling short of the very clear truth of it. You know what I mean? It's like, if I can write it, why can't I fucking do it? You know what I mean? Like, uh, but I do think about all of the things that it was important to me to be and how many of those have come true through, I mean, look, it's hard work, but it's also a lot of, you know, I mean, and I'm not just being like falsely modest. It's a lot of luck and it's a lot of people's help. I mean, you know, I got three of the greatest magazine editors who've ever lived and I've gone from one to the next to the next. But you do wonder what kind of person you want to be. I went to Bill Knack's funeral. And, you know, for people who don't know, William Knack is... Bill Knack, the, the famous Sports Illustrated, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's as good as anybody who's ever done it. He might be the best who's ever done it, but he's certainly 
he's on any to steal your he's on anybody's list of the best sports writers who've ever lived and his kids were telling these stories and their eulogies about what he was like around the house and it hit me so hard that they didn't say a thing about his secretarial obituary or do you know what I mean like like he had this whole other life with them and it just made me think like boy I sure hope that that's how my funeral sounds. So, I mean, like, not, you know, this is a very long self-indulgent answer to a very sort of meta important question. And, you know, in a lot of ways, if I sounds like I'm rambling, it's because, I mean, it, the book is an answer. To, the whole book is an answer to that question you just asked. And I think one part in that forward, certainly, and in the book to some extent too, is your wife sort of calling you out on this. Oh, yeah. You know, which my wife has certainly done uh, on my end, you know, uh, basically saying, look what you're giving up here. And I think this was maybe even before uh, y'all had started having kids together. Yeah. And the, and the one of the things that you talk about very movingly in this book, it's a struggle y'all had to have children and how that was affecting all the things, all these things that you're thinking about. Now that you've had two daughters, congratulations, by the way. Um, Thank you. How has that changed the way you see all this? I mean, it's just a reminder of what we all know. We all know what matters and what doesn't. It's just like, you know, you've had stories come out that are really well received. I mean, you had your book that came out that everybody just raved over and that feels good. But, and sometimes that feels better than sort of the slot, the daily slog of life. I mean, one of the things Sonia and I have talked about is that uh, during COVID, it was interesting because every time I got to go on the road I and work, I received nothing but positive feedback in every way imaginable. The, the actual, that, but that's fake, that's fake life. And the actual life is sometimes hard work, but ultimately more rewarding. And so I, you know, I have found, especially over these last seven months, that it is very easy to talk about it. It's even easier to write a book about it, but it's really hard to be the person you want to be. You know, I think of that great Jason Isbell line, like, there ain't much difference in the man I want to be and the man that I really am. And, like, I think that, you know, if the book, you know, I hope there's several arcs of the book, but I hope one of them is... Uh, an arc of desire of wanting to get to the place where you can say that. When we come back, Wright Thompson talks about how he gets in close with some of the most famous people in the world of sports. I, I mean, I think I'm just annoying and relentless. Like, I don't think there's a magic trick. I just think it's, I'm scared of failing at this story more than I'm scared of anything this person might think about me or say to me. That and more ahead on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. 
If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to our conversation with Wright Thompson. I want to ask about Mississippi a little bit. You born and bred there. Family has deep roots there on both sides. You know, your dad was a lawyer. Your mom's family had, had and still has lots of farmland there. Did you grow up wanting to continue that line, or did you grow up wanting to get away? I, I, all I wanted was to get away. Uh, it's pretty funny. I mean, I find myself, like, I got to go to these farm meetings, you know, a couple of times a year. And, like, every time I'm in them, I'm like, I just cannot believe I'm a 44-year-old sitting in Mississippi going to a farm meeting. This is like, <laughs> this would have been 16-year-old me's worst nightmare. And so, uh, but no, man, all I wanted was to get away. And, you know, uh, I mean, I write about this in a book, like the, the, the sort of myth of escape. Like most people who are running are actually running for themselves. And so it doesn't matter where you go or how fast you go, you're not getting any further away from the thing you want to get away from. And so, uh, you know, being around Julian, I mean, some of it is the way he is because like if his business is 15, 20 and 23 year old, three years in the future. And so like he put whiskey in barrels this year that he won't ever live to see bottled. And so, just by nature that bleeds into stuff. It doesn't make him like a Zen master. He's not being intentional. He lives in the long view and that's very seductive. And so some of that is real. And some of it, I'm sure that, you know, I was projecting my own desires onto what it must be like to live that far in the future. And, you know, I wanted the book to be a, I don't know how to put this. I wanted the book to, allow the reader to try to ask themselves those same questions about themselves that I was asking myself. Uh, but I mean, to answer your question, I wanted to get far, far away. And it isn't until fairly recently that I realized it wasn't Clarksdale, Mississippi. I was running from, it was my own fear of how I might end up being the human version of Clarksdale, Mississippi. Well, I was going to say, it's not Clarksdale, but you're... Does that make any sense? Well, it does. And I, I, to kind of follow up just real quick, what what made you come back, even though you said it's only been a few years that, since you kind of figured this out, but you've been there longer. You know, you've been in Oxford for a long time now. You're raising a family there. What made yeah. you come back and what's what's made you stay? It's very different. I mean, I came back after my father died because my brother works in tech and lives out in the Bay Area and has to. And I can live anywhere. And so while I flirted with just moving to New York City and living that life or hell, moving to Key West and doing something ridiculous, I just was like, that is super, super selfish. You know, I mean, you know, I felt like it was my responsibility to be close enough to help. And and by the way, this is slightly unfair because, I mean, up until this year, I mean, I spent at least 180 days a year on the road. 
So it wasn't like I had I had all of the good stuff. Yeah, you live in the Marriott, basically. Yeah, exactly. No, you're exact. No, I, no, exactly. And like I had all of the good stuff about living in a small town, but none of the claustrophobia. I want to ask a little bit about sort of the nature of how you do your work when you're doing these big pieces for ESPN and that sort of thing. You know, I think when you were starting out and I was starting out, uh, it was probably a lot easier to get close to an athlete than it is now. There's all these layers of publicists and PR people and agents and stuff like that in the way, especially for the guys you're aiming at and women the who are at the, the top of their respective fields. So what is your, do you have like, certain strategies you use or certain um, uh, ways you approach those kind of stories when you want the big ones like Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods or somebody like that. How do you convince basically folks like that, that um, they should, you know, spend time with you and trust you and have you tell their story? One, I believe in going in through the front door, I believe in uh, just letting them know right off the bat that, I'm not making merch. I'm not here to cut deals. Uh, I don't know or care what your brand is. And, you know, what's interesting is the mid-range guys are the ones who try to, who are, you know, always trying to cut deals. The guys at the very, 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 very top understand that they are, they are playing a game that will continue to be played after they are dead. And that in every generation, there have been five or six of them and 20 or 30 of me. And, you know, and so do you know what I mean? Like, like, like they get it. And so having someone look at them in an empathetic, but unbiased and un sort of compromised way is ultimately to their advantage. And so I think the guys at the very top get it. It's the, you know, I mean, I don't want to pick on people, but like, you know, that's something that like, that's something that LeBron James would get, but that Kevin Durant wouldn't. And that's one of the differences. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, like that's the line is understanding stuff like that. Do you find it difficult with these guys? Obviously Jordan, Tiger Woods, most of the people you write about many, have been written about a billion times. Um, do you f ever find it difficult to figure out something to say that hasn't been said? Or when you approach a story like that, is it because you've gotten an idea about something that maybe hasn't been said? It goes both ways. I mean, sometimes it's, I definitely suspect something, but you have to, you know, that's always just a prompt to ask questions. It's never like, uh, we're not lawyers, uh, we're not proving a case, you know, you're telling a story. And so like, I don't like, I'm not trying to like prove an idea I have. Like I really am interested in finding an interesting person, having some interesting ideas that form the basis of the first 20 questions. And sometimes those 20 questions lead you to something interesting. And sometimes 300 questions later, you don't even really remember what those 20 questions were, much less your idea that prompted them. And so, I mean, I think it goes both ways. I do find that, that uh, I see in your stories, you're in places that I, I'm 
even as somebody who's done a lot of this, I was like, how the hell did he get there? Like, I keep thinking about your story on Urban Meyer when you're in Urban's car reading to him from some book that <laughs> is, you know, useful, you think will be useful to him and that sort of thing. And part of what I think is, how did you get in the car? You know, and I, I just wonder whether, do you think there's any particular trick to that? Or is it just, is there something about you and your personality that sort of lubricates those interactions? Have you, have you sort of analyzed that much? Oh no, man, I'm really scared to analyze it that much. I mean, I think it's just annoying. <laughs> I mean, I think I'm just annoying and relentless. Like, I don't think there's a magic trick. I just think it's, I'm scared of failing at this story more than I'm scared of anything this person might think about me or say to me. I mean, I, I got a story that's running in uh, nine days and that's sort of the only thing in the world that exists right now, you know? I feel like it's 8,000 new words on Archie, Archie Manning. Who is, who, it feels like that's all your worlds coming together. Because if there's anybody who's like the, the singular icon of Mississippi, it's Archie Manning. What, what led you to, to write this piece? What do you think you want to say about him now? Well, this is the 50th anniversary of basically the birth of the legend. Well, this is interesting. I'll tell you the question I first asked him and what prompted like the original sort of meta idea for wanting to have a conversation with him without saying this is going to be the story, but like this is what is interesting to me. And then you can just sort of see when it comes out, what of that still lives in it. And, you know, so basically I was like, you've had a 50 year relationship with this person named Archie Manning, who is, has a lot in common with you, but isn't you. And I would like to know the arc of that relationship when you understood him, when you resented him, all of it. Like, I wanna know what it's like to, for you and Olivia to have had a 50 year relationship with Archie Manning, you know? Like, and, and because in America, he's best known as the father of two quarterbacks. If you're in a triangle, between say Memphis, New Orleans and Destin, Florida, he's one of the most famous people alive. I mean, it's a big deal. And so I just wanted to talk to him about his relationship with that other person who has sort of followed him for his whole life. So you're doing TV now, a lot of the time, the show True South that runs on the SEC network. I felt like from the moment this show started, it's about the South and it's about food and drink that, it was so perfect for you because more than anybody else I know, you know in any given city where to eat and where to drink. And I wondered, have always wondered whether all that information is in your head or do you have like a notebook somewhere or a file on your computer where it's like, you know, Butte, Montana, here's where you go. You know, how do you keep track of that? You know, I have a, you know, on my Google you know, like Google Maps, you can save stuff. Like I have stuff marked, but I sort of think if you can't remember it, it's not that great. <laughs> and so uh, if you're writing a story and you can't remember a quote, like not the exact words, but you can't remember roughly what someone says, then it probably shouldn't be in your story. And so I feel that, I feel that way about these places. And, you know, you talk, I, we talked earlier about leaving home running, you know, 
uh, all of these places, I mean, I've formed really long relationships with some of these places. I mean, PJ Clark's tweeted, uh, did a thing on their social media about my book, which just, I mean, I, I'm as happy about that as I am about any bestseller list. But like, th there are places that I have really long relationships now with the people who own them and work there and run them. And, you know, it's in that light, it's pretty clear that each of those is some attempt to recreate home. You know, you, you, you leave running away from home, running to other homes that are themselves sort of makeshift facsimiles and proxies for the home you left, you know. Right, I wanna, I wanna wrap up by asking you just a real simple question sort of about the meaning of life and stuff. Um, so, you know, you spent your career writing about all these other people, you know, you, you got a whole book of these profiles of other people, and now you have a, a second book, which is kind of a long version of a profile of another person. All these hundreds, thousands of people you've interviewed sort of mash it all together. What have they taught you about yourself? Basically that we are all trying and sometimes exceeding and often failing to be the best version of ourselves. And that failing at that doesn't mean your failure, you know, that, that, uh, you know, the things that, that's a really hard question because a lot of things you learn, you don't really like. I mean, I, you know, the uh, I, I certainly see myself in some of these people who were mixtures of arrogance and insecurity. Uh, and then, like, it's, you know, you don't always like what you see. I do also feel like through some of these, I mean, maybe the most important story I've ever done in my life to answer your question was a profile of my childhood hero, Dale Murphy. I can't even tell you. Dale Murphy and I are friends now. Dale Murphy came to my Zoom event. Dale Murphy is a... Mormon who doesn't drink and bought a ticket to a bourbon book Zoom event. You know, they say, don't meet your heroes. I'm very lucky in that he's great. But I realized that writing these profiles has, and I'm going to get back to Dale, this is leading somewhere, has taught me that over and over and over again, the mask eats the face, which I talked about in that in the intro to that cost of these dreams. I think it's an up daiquan. Uh, but knowing that that happens is like the greatest armor against it. And seeing how Dale Murphy went out of his way when he retired to actively destroy the avatar of Dale Murphy number three, and like how he knew that that legend was toxic to whatever life he wanted to have. I mean, you know, I felt like, I was like, that. I want that, you know? I would rather at the end of the day like, I want that. That is very attractive. Is, uh, and so, you know, you don't, I don't think you learn lessons from writing about people or frankly, reading about people. I mean, hopefully the experience of reading about them is not that much different than the experience of writing about them. But like, you know, hopefully, you know, you learn that there's something to learn from everyone's humanity and everyone's successes and failures because we are all imperfect. I mean, not to get spiritual on you, but you know, we were all born sinners, you know, and, and you learn from writing about these people that, that, that you have to work every day to sort of stay in the light.
One of the things you learn from the people at Wright Thompson Stories is how easy it is to get lost. Time and again, he focuses on athletes who lose themselves to their ambition or their competitive drive or maybe just a need to please their fathers. And when the game is over, they don't quite know what to do with themselves anymore. Wright is smart enough to understand they had to figure those things out before the clock runs to zero. I'd argue that his work is a flashing sign in a way to tell us the same thing. What's important is not always the next game or the next season or that distant light across the lake. It's probably something simpler, like family and friends at home. Sometimes you have to travel the world to see the story that's right in front of you. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where each episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening. Oh, I mean, it's interesting. God, please cut out all the times I say <laughs> Sorry. I, uh, I, I, I could feel the tick. <laughs>